Hello, and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs. Produced by UC Berkeley's Haas Institute, Who Belongs examines issues of inclusion and exclusion in our society through a framework the Institute calls Othering and Belonging. My name is Sarah Grossman, one of the hosts of Who Belongs. For the last two and a half years, I've been based in Berlin, Germany, where I've been examining issues of social inclusion and exclusion in the European context. Today, I'll be sharing some of what I've learned with all of you as I interview Amelia Roig of the Center for Intersectional Justice here in Berlin. Originally from France, Amelia is the founder and director of CIJ, a nonprofit working to combat intersecting forms of structural inequality and discrimination in Europe. CIJ works in three main areas, advocacy, research, and training, ultimately aiming to influence public discourse and policymaking on issues related to intersectional discriminations. Let's hear what Amelia had to say. Could you begin by introducing the center and how you came about founding it? Um, so yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so the center was founded in um, officially in April 2017, uh, and the idea came about in November 2016. Um, I was in a job at the time which was supposed to be intersectional, and I realized, like my previous jobs as well, that there was always something missing, and that I couldn't find the intersectional perspective anywhere represented in a political way. Um, and so I decided to found the center. And, uh, but from the idea till the full result, I had to think of what kind of organization I wanted it to be. And uh, I opted for an advocacy, research and training organization, simply because in Europe, um, intersectionality has arrived in academic spheres. And also, I would say, of course, definitely in, in social justice movements. But it's always a perspective that people adopt um, in a very superficial way um, because of a lack of full or in-depth understanding of what it actually means and how it can be concretely implemented. I want to ask you about something that um, some text I saw on the website. Um, just as background, a lot of our listeners are in the U.S., so I think they would have a lot of questions about the European context and framework. You note on the website that European legal systems are currently blind towards intersectional discrimination. Can you explain what you mean by that and what that looks like <clears throat> tangibly? Yes, absolutely. So for several reasons. The first reason is that discrimination... Um, is understood as um, a solely um, individual phenomenon. It means that it represents um, uh, an interaction between person A and person B or person A and group of persons, um, but it's mostly seen as something that is, for the most part, intentional, aware, discrimination, um, you know, composed of behaviors or opinions, and what we want to see is in a legal framework is are the other dimensions of discrimination, namely the institutional dimension, the structural dimension and the historical dimension. And so that's the first um, step. And if we don't recognize those dimensions, then it's really difficult to recognize intersectional discrimination in its entirety. And so when I say that the European systems are blind to intersectionality, it's also because there's, for the second part, um, a, a very crucial category that is missing, namely the category of race. Because Europe is marked by, by um, in some contexts, like the French context or the Belgian context, uh, colorblindness, meaning that race doesn't play a role in, in society or shouldn't play a role. And so it's basically missing a step and saying that, okay, race is not a valid category. Uh, and or uh, post-racialism, for example, in the German context, 
or in the Italian context saying, uh, okay, race used to be a category, it used to be a valid political category, but now it is no longer the case because we are um, over um, this system. So because World War II ended and with it, then the concept of race became irrelevant, which of course is misguided because race is, or of course is a social construct, of course is not a biological reality, but it still um, creates uh, implications. And of course, if the um, many of the auditors are in the US, they will totally understand what I say. But here in, in Europe, it's really not... Uh, there's no consensus on this. People still consider race to be a biological category that we should get rid of and something that is shameful. Um, I picked up on something that you were saying about uh, how racial categories and racism is viewed in Germany versus in Belgium versus in Italy. Can you speak to those differences or is this a larger European-wide phenomenon of the same kind of attitudes? I think it's a, it's a larger European-wide phenomenon of the different attitudes to take exactly what you said, because uh, I, would say that, I wouldn't say that there are um, deep differences between those systems. It's just that, for example, in a French system that is marked by colonialism and that doesn't see its direct involvement in the Holocaust, I would say, apart from the short, you know, Pétain administration, Basically, what they would say is that, yeah, the, the French Republic is built on the ideals of equality, fraternity and liberty. And the thing is that this fraternity thing is basically a, a universalist uh, value that, uh, is, that sees any particularisms as threatening to the nation. And so that's the reason why race is seen as a threat to this unity, which is a utopian unity, which is a unity that de facto doesn't exist because there is discrimination, that there is very strong institutional structural discrimination in France based on race um, and ethnicity and religion, but race being the more generic category for all this. And in the German system, for example, um, there would be, I think, a recognition, at least in academic spheres and in certain um, in certain spheres of, um, you know, like, yeah, of, uh, in, it's in certain political spheres that uh, discrimination exists on the basis of migration or culture or religion. Um, but still, they see racism as a, as a system, racism as a historical, political, economic system, as um, a remnant from the past that basically stopped existing or stopped um, stopped existing or stopped uh, creating um, a social reality after 1945. So you think this is in reaction to <clears throat> going the opposite way that um, when Germany was walking towards the Holocaust, this is their reaction is, okay, now there's no race, we're all equal. Exactly. But in practice, people aren't. Exactly. And that's the same as France, you know, that's basically trying to erase differences. But what we try to do as a center as well is to show that differences in themselves is definitely not the problem. Differences should be embraced, it should be celebrated, they should be valued in society. The problem is not differences, it's the archization of those differences. And this is where there's a massive misunderstanding because people try to erase them and be like, no, 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 I don't see you as black, I don't see Muslims, no, no, for me, everybody's human, we're all human. Of course we're all human, but we are different and that's not the problem to be different, that's not that those differences are marked. The problem is that um, the hierarchy, the hierarchy, sorry, that is um, attached to the differences is most of the time uh, overlooked. It's, it's something that is implicit and people don't really realize that that's the problem and not the differences themselves. Something that I've been wondering um, being here in Europe is um, how Europe's history of colonialism factors into how Europeans view race. 
in the North American context, we have such a long history of uh, slavery and Jim Crow, racism and that, that framework. Uh, the European context is more rooted in colonialism. And I'm wondering, I know that's a really broad question, but how does that factor into current attitudes around migration and race? Well, I think the fact that, um, you know, the colonial history of European countries um, was displaced territorially, you know, that it, it didn't happen on European soil makes a massive difference because it's easier to distantiate themselves from it and to see it as something that is from another time and also from another place. Uh, and how it frames migration, I know that, um, you know, many times there is still this colonial ideal or this, yeah, these um, colonial images of, you know, having colonized people still uh, being attracted to the European culture and still wanting to, you know, participate in European life. And that's how sometimes European, or that, that's how sometimes migration from former colonies to Europe is framed, you know. Um, and that's a massive problem because migration has very different roots rather than just the admiration of a European culture, whatever that is, basically. So um, it definitely frames uh, the way European colonialism is basically, uh, it is impossible to think of migration, to speak of migration, to analyze migration, or to even like want to tackle it politically without understanding the colonial past. I'm not sure if I understood your question right or if I answered no, it No, that's right. exactly what, okay. what I was asking. Um, I want, <clears throat> running off that, I want to uh, turn the conversation towards language and the use of the word intersectionality and um, talking about race in general in Europe. Where is that conversation right now in Europe at, compared to what you see in North America? Is it still in this colorblind, we don't see race? I guess my question is when you're in these, when you're talking about race in these academic contexts or these policy contexts, how do people respond to mm. this word? Is it something that they're comfortable with or is it a deeply uncomfortable conversation? Oh, it's a, it's a deeply uncomfortable conversation. And it has to do with the fact that there are still very few people of color in those spheres. And I remember when I was writing my dissertation, so it was uh, six years ago, seven years ago, you know, in the big, at the beginning, uh, and it was very difficult to speak about race. And basically, I was constantly uh, being delegitimized by my colleagues for seeing things that don't exist or, you know, for also attaching things to subjective interpretation of my lived reality, you know, and, and not seeing the structural aspect of it. Uh, I would say that things are changing. So it was a, it's not such a long time, but things have changed and discourses changed. Um, for example, there was a, a conference on race and law in the same center where, in the same research center where I write, wrote my dissertation. And I think uh, seven years ago, it would have been unthinkable to have that. So progress is, progress is happening for sure. Um, what I also see is that <clears throat> uh, from the um, grassroots uh, point of view, things are changing tremendously as well. There's like a big wave of empowerment and people of color being aw becoming aware of the systems in which them and their parents, grandparents have been embedded for so long without being able to name it. Uh, and I think it's something that is really powerful. It happened to me as well, you know, like having this lived reality and also knowing, you know, my family's history, but not really being able to connect with other people. So it's like more this collective understanding or um, being able to put your experience in common with other people. You know, it's like what the Me Too movement did, you know, oh, okay, I thought it was something that happened to me personally, but there are so many other people living this and it's a structural issue. 
Why do you think this is happening now? Well, I think social media... In terms media, of race, talking about race. Well, because the situation is worsening, for one, because we see that... Um, I don't know. I mean, we could ask ourselves, so what's the egg and the, and the hen, basically? That's the, whole that's the whole question. But I would say that generally the world is changing. So I'm going from a meta understanding of it, but I see that um, the world is changing and there's tremendous resistance to this change. And resistance comes from, um, you know, people who, or groups of people are generally, humanity as a whole, basically resisting change because this is what happens. You know, change is resisted until it's, it's, it's no longer possible to resist and, and then change happens. And so as a resistance to it, so I don't know if it's because of uh, the rise of right-wing right -wing extremism um, that grassroots movements have been more active or if it's because right uh, um, grassroots movements have become aware of the situation that was also before the rise of the right-wing still not good, um, that it happened. Um, but I think what helped it uh, is um, our communities that were formed on social media. You know, like content that is more easily available than before. You don't have to go to a library and read lengthy texts on intersectionality or feminism or racism and postcolonialism. You can all access it online. You have um, a lot of videos, a lot of material that is accessible to everyone. Um, and I see, for example, now younger generations, if you speak to people in their early 20s, like they know all about intersectionality. You don't need to explain because they know how to access it. Um, and then there's more, it's, it's easier to connect with each other as well with social media, I guess. And, uh, and because now the issues are also more obvious, you know, in the, in the nineties, for example, it was, uh, of course, racism was there and there was still, um, a lot of institutional structural discrimination towards, uh, people of, uh, African descent, North and Sub-Saharan, you know, <clears throat> sorry, uh, former colonized countries. But now you had situations where you have police violence, you had murders by the police, you have really marginalization and, and oppression from communities living in the so-called banlieues in France, for example, or here in, uh, in Germany, uh, refugees. Um, so I would say everywhere you see that those race issues are more visible, they're more accessible to us. And so we, we kind of, it's easier to draw um, uh, a pattern uh, rather than before. Continuing on the topic of language, I'm curious how, uh, maybe you can speak in the German and French framework, how language itself, itself can has hindered the conversation. For example, um, in Germany, there's the phrase somebody with a migrant background, um, which is a pretty all-encompassing phrase. And I'm wondering if you can first explain what that means to people that are listening and also talk of other examples or other ways that the conversation has to be shifted in, a, in the context of other languages outside of the English realm. So yeah, for sure. Um, first of all, with a migration background, I think it came from the realization that we needed to name something there. You know, there was something in the country that needed to be named and it was the fact that it was not only white Germans now, but also, you know, Turkish families, descendants of Turkish families who themselves became German. And we couldn't, we could no longer call them um, guest workers or Turkish migrants because they were not Turkish migrants. They were Germans or they had lived here for a generation. They were born here, raised here. Uh, and so this is why this with a migration background category came to living. And it's, it was with the micro census of 2005 that it um, came to existence. 
And I think in um, in France uh, there was a similar attempt to have it, but we we didn't have it. It, it was called um, issue de l'immigration, which is like coming or stemming from immigration. So a very similar um, a very similar idiom, and um, and so. I would say that, yes, it has hindered the conversation tremendously. It is extremely hard to speak about racism because we speak about migration. And so, you know, it was like the Six Degrees conference that took place some weeks ago was about migration. And then it was possible to have an entire conversation on migration without bringing up racism. Because that's what happens when you don't use the language. You can shift the debate to another um, problematic, basically. And so, of course, migration is an issue, but it's a racialized issue because it's a racialized and a class issue. Because if you have migration from Sweden or from North America, it's no longer a political issue in that sense. And if languages such as French and English are brought to Germany, it's no longer an issue. It's no longer a political issue rather than if it's Arabic and Turkish uh, or Swahili. Uh, and so... Um, That's why we lack the language and it's, it's, it's been very invisibilizing and silencing. I mean, it has had those two effects. And so whenever we try to bring it up, then basically either we're, we're pushed back to migration. Oh, but that's more a migration issue or, oh, no, no, that's more a class issue. You know, when it comes to people who already live here and obviously migration is no longer the issue, then we will hear, no, it's, it's not a matter of race at all. And it's unspeakable. So we wouldn't even say Rasse of Deutsch. We would just say, yeah, it has to do with ethnic herkunft or anything like that. Then it would be clear that um, what's told to us is, no, no, it's a matter of class. Could you explain what you just said for English speakers? Um, sure. We wouldn't say Rasse yeah. in German. Rasse is race in German. Mm -hmm. Because this word in German is unspeakable. It's a word that people, you know, when you say it, you, you feel discomfort in people in front of you. Physically, you feel that, you know, their looks, their body language tells you just don't say that word in a German context. The connotation of the word race yeah. is racism. If you say mm. race, you basically uh, solidify uh, racist biology and racist uh, um, scientific racism. And that's it's very reductive to see it this way. Because race is way more than this. It's a political category. It's a construct. And so what I'm saying when I say Rasse in German is not I see people grouped in different categories according to their, to their phenotype. And most importantly, uh, certain competencies and attributes um, well attributed to their race, basically. What I'm saying is there's a system that has been classifying people according to those constructed political, social, and historical categories, which at some point in time had a biological grounding, even if it's no longer the case, it still produces effects. And uh, Colette Guillaumin, uh, a French uh, intellectual, said, race doesn't exist, but it kills people. Or race doesn't exist, but racism kills, basically. And that's exactly what it says. It's... Um, We should move beyond this biological understanding of race because we agree that it's not a biological category. It's been proven scientifically that race do not exist. And so that's not our point. But now we cannot, we, we cannot, uh, tell, we cannot say this word in German. And so, so how do people talk about race? They don't talk about race. And that's the problem. They say even the word racism was, um, the word racism was kind of uh, completely 
superseded by the word hostility towards strangers, Fremdenfeindlichkeit. And this word was supposed to replace racism. But racism is not hostility towards strangers. I mean, it's not only this. It's one part of it. It's one materialization of racism or symptom. But racism is a system. So if you speak about hostility towards strangers, then in order to combat racism or hostility towards strangers, what you need to do is talk to the hostile people and tell them, be nice to the strangers. But anti-racism is much more than this because we need to tackle a structure, a system that is deeply ingrained in our societies for now more than 400 centuries, basically, with some you know, setbacks. And it's, it's not something linear, but it has been like race has played a role since uh, Columbus uh, uh, set foot on uh, the Americas and then decided, okay, this is now uh, a new continent and, uh, and since this interaction happened. Knowing that these are the challenges or barriers that you and other advocates have to face in talking to white Germans or white Europeans about race, and I mean that in the sense that they are still the ones that run the most powerful institutions in this continent, um, what are your tactics? How do you approach changing the language? How do you, how do, you do that? So what we do is that we constantly remind people. So sometimes I would just throw the word out there. I would say Rasse, then people would cringe, you know, and I would say, yeah, I saw you. <laughs> and that's okay because we're not used to it. But when I say, and I try to de deconstruct it. So this is what we try to do. We work a lot at the moment. We're at the phase of deconstruction mostly. And otherwise what we do is try to see or to describe racism as a system and try to emphasize the, two, the three other dimensions of racism, institutional, uh, structural, and historical, that have been completely left out of the discourse and uh, focusing solely on the individual dimension. And I think that's the first step that we need to do. And um, in terms of categories, I mean, we also need to name whiteness. So that's something that we do as a system as well. And also say, okay, here there's a majority of white people. So this is something that we would say, and people are very, very uncomfortable with this. But I think it, it works. Something that I've personally been wondering here in, 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 in the US, whiteness can be a lot of, you know, French person with French background or Danish background or whatever. And in Europe, there's almost a biological, I'm French, I'm German, and there's a DNA yeah. aspect that it seems to me to have been an even harder conversation to create an inclusive society of, no, this person with a Turkish background is also French. Yeah. It's a, it seems like an even more difficult conversation. I'm wondering, one, if you found that to be true, and two, how, how do you develop the conversation beyond that? Yeah, that's absolutely true, uh, in the sense that uh, whiteness is attached to nationality uh, very much in Europe, and I think I would say it's true for every single country. Um, even in the UK, even in the UK, even if they're much better than France, Germany and Belgium, let's say, but still. And now I think it's changing with the new generations, you know, like um, this more inclusive definition of being French or being Belgian or being German is still not the case. In um, what sense? Well, that, um, you know, because the, the, the nationality law is different, you know, here in Germany, it's still attached to lineage. Use sanguine, so the, the law of the um, blood basically is still what 
is the underlying system for granting nationality or not. I mean, it's, it's changing and there have been demands to this, but still, like, that's the system attached to nationality in Germany. Whereas in France and, Bel in France and Belgium, if you were born, it's jus soli, so it's the, the law of the soil, you know, of the territory, which means that if you were born in France, you're French. So it's the same as in the US. In Italy, that's also the same system as in Germany. And so, of course, it makes it more difficult to attach, um, or basically, in use sanguini, so in the blood lineage uh, system, it's very clear that um, whiteness or is attached to nationality. And in the other systems, it's, it's, it's a bit, uh, it's not as obvious, and it's changing very slowly. I'm not saying that it's changing um, dramatically. I remember the first time that I called myself French was when I left France. Because when I was in France, people constantly asked me all the time, where are you from? Mm. So I was very used to saying like, oh, and, and I don't have like a very easy family history where I can say, oh, I'm from, you know, Madagascar or oh, I'm from Kenya, whatever. It's always like having to say, because, yeah, yeah, I always had to say, okay, so my dad is Jewish Algerian and my mother is from Martinique. And, and it's a, an oversimplification because on both sides, it's more than this. And, uh, and so when I studied in London for the first time, I was 20, and then people asked me, so where are you from? I was like, so my dad is from Algeria, and my mother is from Martinique. And they would say, oh, I thought you were French. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, yeah, of course, actually, yes, I'm French. And it was the first time that I could say, I'm French, when people ask me where are you from, without being questioned. And it was something very new to me. And I have that in Germany as well, when people ask me where you're from, and say, yeah, yeah, I'm French. And... Um, some people would, of course, you know, say, oh, yeah, but where are you really from? But it's something that people can hear because, you know, they, they see that I wasn't born here or, you know, so. I wanted to ask, what are some, what are some countries doing well? Where, where do you see progress happening? Where do you see regression happening? And what does that look like on the policy level um, and trickling down to the society? So, I, because Europe is a really big, diverse continent, and there's lots of different things happening around the continent, and I'm wondering if you could put that into context yeah, sure. for our listeners. Um, well, I would say that everywhere, I mean, the political tensions are so strong that at this point in time, it's going to be difficult for me to tell you, oh, we are seeing a lot of progress in that country, because there's the, you know, convergence makes it difficult for a, country, for a European country, you know, whatever European country, to be um, demarcating itself from the others. So that's why I would say currently the situation is not looking good anywhere. Um, because even though there are some fringes in European governments that see the urgency of anti-discrimination and, and would have quite elaborate an, an elaborate understanding of what it could look like, Politically, it's not it's not sorry it's not possible to implement it at the time, because the stakes are too high and uh, the right wing forces prevent um, any meaningful policies in that regard to to be implemented. Quite simply put, what would a meaningful um, intersectional policy look like? Can you give a really concrete example? Yeah. So. Um, it has to be very concrete because it's always very contextual and it has to be attached to various, you know, um, various uh, uh, examples, you know, like various um, factors, you know, but I can take 
the example of um, the anti-discrimination of uh, women wearing the hijab in, in Europe, which is a growing issue right now. And de facto, there's a more and more um, uh, an, yeah, a ban for women with a hijab to work, even though it's not necessarily written in laws, but there's a discourse um, in Europe that um, encourages people who are discriminating against uh, women with wearing the hijab or who have prejudices against them to enforce them by not giving them employment. And so an intersectional um, anti-discrimination policy would um, take this very specific case um, um, and do some awareness raising campaigns on this and also try to change the, the narrative around Muslim women. Um, and this would mean that it would be a, a feminist and anti-racist campaign in that regard, because if you look at the grounds of discrimination of women wearing the hijab, and that's um, at the EU level a quite problematic aspect because it's not recognized as um, either gender discrimination or um, uh, racist discrimination or uh, breach of freedom of religion, because in the same situation, women without a hijab would not be discriminated. And in the same situation, Muslims Muslim men, let's say, would not be discriminated against. So it's really like the combination of both um, identities, of both systems, I would say, which create their discrimination. Mm -hmm. And um, so very concretely, yes, uh, there are many different things that can be put in place, but also like an interdiction of <laughs> a ban of discrimination, you know, would be something and also specifically on those grounds. But it's, you know, you see the, the political tensions I was mentioning because it's unthinkable to have anything like that at the moment. I could, I could think of another example, um, the gender pay gap on the labor market. Uh, instead of having a, a single access understanding and policy measures attached to it, meaning, okay, we look at uh, uh, different uh, or um, yeah, pay differences between men and women, it would mean looking at differences within those categories, so differences between women women with a migration background, women from a lower socioeconomic status with lower um, education levels, etc. And then it's easier to see patterns of uh, intersectional discrimination. And then part of it would be to have a system because most of these pay differentials between women or among women happen because the care sector remains uh, dominated by women, be it paid work or unpaid work. So it would mean that you know, we have a holistic understanding of care and we also have um, an anti-patriarchal understanding of care, meaning that we would need to involve men in the home, outside the home, as well in this sector. In uh, the U.S. media covered um, quite heavily Germany's intake of migrants in 2015-2016 um, and it was all very highly lauded and, and people were like, wow, great Germany. Um, now that these migrants are here, is Germany prepared to make them included in the society? Are there structures there? Is there <coughs> willingness there? What are you seeing? So it depends on what... So I would say in the mainstream, no. In the mainstream, there has been a massive backlash after the intake of refugees. So this is how AFD, so the Alternative for Germany, which is a right-wing, uh, very extremist right-wing party, um, uh, which came to existence um, 
as a, as a response to this, basically, and as a resistance to change. Again, I was mentioning this at the beginning. So, um, and I would also say that it's, it's quite reflected in the media. There, there's no, um, or at least the dominant discourse in the media is no, there's no, or there's a reluctance to accept this fact that now, you know, those people need to be in included, basically, or, yeah. Uh, what I see is that there's also an, a, a wider movement, and especially in big cities, of people who want to um, welcome and include um, newcomers. Um, and for example, there was a massive demonstration, Unteilbar demo, um, undivided or indivisible demo uh, demonstration, uh, which drew 200,000 people, I think it was, so really massively families like and it was a very mainstream demonstration which was also its strength um, and it shows that a lot of people do not agree with this dominant narrative um, there are also a lot of initiatives by civil society even by not radical at all but just like really civil society quite consensual organizations trying to facilitate um, the integration in inverted commas because this is the discourse here or the inclusion of migrants. So there is a conversation happening. I think there's the readiness to talk about it. But um, when it comes to changing the mindsets and changing the social fabric of Germany, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult task that will take time. And also, it would need to redefine German identity. So redefining a national identity is a very big thing. Uh, and currently, there's, there are very powerful forces that are against it. They are really fiercely opposed to it. And on the contrary, try to smash anything that is not German, white, Christian. So it's, it's, it's yeah, that's all I can say. <laughs> um, with this uh, rise of these strong right-wing movements, what are you seeing movements against these, this right wing look like? What, is, what are activists doing? Can you talk about the trends there in counter activism or pushing back? What are you seeing? So I see as well a very dangerous consensus in German society to not really name IFD by their name, you know, namely a racist party. Because they've entered the, the Bundestag, so the parliament, it's really now it's as if suddenly those, you know, this ideology had become part of German democracy. And it has somehow. But democracy has its limits as well. And, um, and so, you know, in the name of freedom of expression and also because it's, it's very trivializing, uh, you know, the, the actual um, threat that it represents, you know, there were some networks of neo-Nazis that were dismantled in the police and in the military, which is like a massive deal, if you think of it, that's so dangerous. And well, nobody really talked about it. Why? Because the general population, the majority of them is not really concerned by this. It's not a threat for them. And so we still see that, um, you know, some people find it really bad because they would rather live in an open society, you know, with tolerant people who, you know, welcome differences. Um, but if force comes to worse, they're not really affected by it in a very tangible way, you know, like their life is not at stake. And that's what I feel more and more that we rely, I mean, people of color um, and all other people, because it's not only people of color, it's people of color, it's LGBTQI communities, it's people with disabilities, um, 
all of us are at the mercy of uh, the majority's solidarity, basically. And that's scary, if you think of it. Um, is there anything that you think US-based organizers can learn from organizers working on race issues in Europe and vice versa? Is there some kind of synergy that you see, you think needs to happen or some kind of learning <clears throat> that should happen from both sides? So what I see for me personally is that every time I, I deal with uh, racial justice activists or social justice activists, but I would say mostly racial justice activists from the US is that I'm tremendously inspira inspired by them. Uh, and I'm like, oh, this is so good to speak to people who know, you know, like who have a culture of racial justice, you know, who know, who have figures of the past to look up to, to inspire them. They have a real historical movement behind them. And here in Europe, we don't. We don't have a racial justice movement. So we're kind of basically building it, looking up to the U.S. racial justice movement, getting inspired by them. But still, we need to build our own movement. So that's a challenge. And at the same time, so it means that for me, I need to be at least once a year in contact with um, a racial justice activists from the U.S. I mean, I speak for myself. Maybe it's different from for other racial justice activists in Europe. I don't know. And also because intersectionality comes from the U.S., you know, so it's they have the theoretical mm, base that exists out there, you know, like the intellectual produ production around racial justice issues is so massive that all what we know, we got it. I mean, not all what we know, but a big part of it, we get it from there. And also from the French West Indies, from, you know, formal, formerly colonized countries, if I look at Aimé Césaire, Alphonse Fanon, you know, they were they are really well-known, world-renowned um, decolonial thinkers and... Uh, um, yeah, and we have our inspiration from them too. But if you look at the situation right now in the French West Indies, well, there's there's anything but a social a racial justice movement. There's no racial justice movement there. Is this what you're trying to do with the Center for Intersectional Justice? Is create a European racial justice framework? I think it's. I mean, it would be very ambitious to say, but maybe I'm going to risk it and say yes. Risk it. Go for it. Yeah, I think yes. I think it's creating a framework for a racial justice movement that is intersectional. You know, so it's like, you know, calling out our feminist sisters and being like, you know, understand what race means. So yeah, it is about that. It is um, about creating such a movement, such a framework. Let's say. So I know we only have a few minutes left. So is there anything about the center that you would want to tell people in the U.S. or? Any information that you want people to know? Well, I would say we're dependent on the support of individuals, and it's always, um, yeah, it's it's always heartwarming and uplifting for us to have more people following us and also don making donations to us. So if you go on our website www.intersectionaljustice.org, you will find a donate button, <laughs> uh, and also like speak um, if you, yeah. We, so we have ties with the U.S. So, for example, CCR, the Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, the African-American Policy Forum. Um, we are in touch with uh, Black Lives Matter activists, with Women's March, Women's March activists, and all of them are, you know, intersectional because there it's now it's in the racial justice um, uh, in racial justice spheres in the U.S. You cannot afford to no longer to to not be intersectional, which is not the case here. And that wraps up this episode of Who Belongs, where we've been talking with Amelia Hoyk, the founder and director of the Center for Intersectional Justice in Berlin. Mm -hmm. 
If you enjoyed this interview and want to hear more episodes of Who Belongs, visit us online at haasinstitute.berkeley.edu forward slash who belongs. You can also find us on social media using our handle at Haas Institute. Thank you for listening. Thank you.